This is Jimmy Corain, and you're listening to another episode of Improv Nerd. And this week's episode of Improv Nerd is brought to you by the Atlanta Improv Festival, running June 16th through the 18th at Village Theater. Submissions for teams are open until May 19th. Enjoy a weekend of great performances, workshops, and shenanigans in the coolest theater in Atlanta. Hurry, and you might even have a chance to win $500 in an improv cage match. For more details, check out AtlantaImprovFestival.com. That's AtlantaImprovFestival.com. This episode is also sponsored by Aaron Graham Coaching. Now, do you feel stuck? Are you having trouble balancing your creative life with your other life? Do you feel pulled in a hundred different directions? Well, working with a life coach can help. Aaron Graham Coaching provides one-on-one life coaching and workshops for creative professionals to help you get unstuck, find balance, and achieve all your goals. A veteran improviser and actor himself, Aaron gets it. Visit AaronGrahamCoaching.com or find him on Facebook. Aaron Graham Coaching. He's got your back. And don't forget to sign up for my award-winning Artist Low Comedy Weekend Summer Intensives here in Chicago, offered the weekends of July 29th and 30th or August 6th through 7th. These intensives are limited to only 14 people, and they sell out. To register, go to my website at jimmycorain.com. That's jimmycorain.com. Yes, we got another great episode of Improv Nerd for you. Our guest today is Kevin Nealon. Now, Kevin was on Saturday Night Live for nine seasons, best known for characters like Mr. Subliminal, Hans and Franz with Dana Carvey, and he hosted Weekend Update. He is a great stand-up with his unique sense of humor and dry wit. Kevin was kind enough to talk to us by phone for about 25 minutes last week. He'll be appearing at City Winery here in Chicago for two shows on Sunday, May 22nd. We talked to him about why he didn't think he'd even get hired for Saturday Night Live when he first auditioned, how having a full life is helpful for a career in comedy, and the importance of being original. Before we get to the episode with uh, Kevin Nealon, I just want to say that Lauren has seven weeks before she gives birth to our baby daughter, Betsy Jane Corrine. And as I say that, I'm getting a little choked up, scared, really, and, and a little, uh, I don't know, a little choked up is uh, the best way. Sad, I guess, maybe. Uh, excited, even. Um, don't tell Lauren that I'm excited. Uh, but but there is some excitement there. People also ask me a lot now, how's Lauren doing? Uh, she is doing okay. She's a lot more uncomfortable uh, in her stomach because the baby is getting bigger. She has this acid reflex in the back of her throat, so she's taking a lot of Tums. Her hormones have been okay. Uh, There's only been a couple times, I think, that she's blamed me for being pregnant and having a baby. Uh, So I I take that as a win. Um, People very rarely ask me how I'm doing with the pregnancy. And, you know, I'm a very selfish and self-centered guy. So uh, since you asked, uh, I am in a state of terror. I'm just filled with anxiety 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But would you expect anything less? And in this interview, uh, Kevin Nealon is kind enough because... He had a child at 53, 53 or 52, something like that. I'm going to have my first child at 52. So he gives me some advice for being a first-time dad. I hope you enjoy this episode. Kevin gives some really good practical advice for people in comedy today. So here it is, the Kevin Nealon episode. Enjoy. Kevin's a nerd, he's a nerd. Oh, yeah. 
Kevin Nealon, thank you for being a guest on Improv Nerd. My pleasure. Okay. Now, when you were a kid, you said you wanted to be a stand-up comedian, and you watched a lot of comedians on late-night talk shows. What was it about watching those late-night talk shows with those comedians that appealed to you for comedy as a profession? Well, I thought it was such a great craft to be able to come out without any kind of um, you know, tools or anything, just your voice, and to be able to affect that many people. And I, I just love the idea of it. And um, it wasn't something you saw a lot. You know, when, growing up as a real small child, you didn't hear about people having a job as comedians. And you grew up, you went to Catholic schools and stuff like that. I, I, how, how did your parents react to you wanting to go into comedy? Well, I went to a um, <clears throat> Catholic high school for, two, for you know, two years at one Catholic high school and two years at another, you know, just parochial schools. And they were always very supportive. My, no matter what I wanted to do, my parents were supportive, and, um, and that's why I was very fortunate to be born into that family. And um, they're very excited about, about it because I was excited. How important is it to have support from your family in comedy? Oh, it, it, it means everything. I think, you know, you see a lot of adults now, and if they're, you know, not well-balanced or they have, you know, issues or depression, a lot of it goes back to the family. I think that's that's a big part of, um, you know, the people in our in our country, you know, whether they grow up to be a criminal or not sometimes, I think that has a, a large part to do with it. You know, and then of course there's mental issues too, but, you know, it's really important. And how how did they support you early on in your career? Did they come out to shows and stuff? Um, yeah, well, they would always call and ask how it went, and they were interested in hearing how it went, and they were constantly um, praising me and encouraging me, and and I knowing that they were fine with it meant a lot. And then after college, you move to L.A., and you start to pursue stand-up professionally, and you meet Dana Carvey on the stand-up circuit, and when SNL hired him, he recommended you f- for the job. And you said you thought you didn't have a chance of getting it because you were a stand-up and not a sketch player. How do you think that helped you with the audition for Saturday Night Live? Well, yeah, Dana recommended me and I think a couple other people. And it helped me because there was no pressure on me. I had very low expectations you know, about getting that. So I was like the only one that went in there and auditioned that wasn't nervous. Everybody else was pacing and sweating and going over their characters and I didn't even have any characters you know <laughs> I would just go in there and do some of my act but I think they were looking for the chemistry that was the main thing and the thing that I, is that I find interesting with the chemistry you know you on Saturday Night Live you worked with Dana Carvey and Phil Hartman John Lovitz just to mention a few Chris Farley later and these people all were doing characters but you were always known for playing you know more of a more of the straight man at times uh, more of a, a dry style. Why do you think your style worked with all those personalities? Well, I think that's just it. They were all very um, big personalities that had broad characters and interesting characters. And, and, you know, eventually I developed characters because I had to because I was on the show and I was living in New York. And, you know, I would come up with the Hans and Franz or Mr. Subliminal or Mr. No Death Perception or whatever, you know. And um, and but you you really need that chemistry and that synergy to work. You know, you can't all be doing characters. You have somebody has to be doing the straight guy. And how did you make that adjustment for for you know writing for yourself? You know, as a stand up to now. I mean, you're thrown into the deep end. You have to write f- sketches. 
That's a good question, and and it's true. I thought about that a lot, and there was a transition. It was going from writing jokes, you know, setups to punchlines, to writing, you know, full sketches and characters, and um, and it was a really uh, interesting challenge and fun challenge. And I ultimately, I you know, rose to the occasion. Did you seek out help from other writers or other performers on the show? Well, you learn so quickly because you're thrown into this mesh of people that, you know, they're there all the time and you're just constantly living there. It's like you're in a boarding school almost. So, you know, you're watching what gets on and what doesn't get on and you watch how people write and who they team up with. And it's a really a quick, pretty quick study. And, you know, it's a very competitive environment, uh, certainly to get your stuff on the air. Was there ever a point where you st- ever doubted yourself at the beginning? Well, yeah, you, you kind of think... Um, Gee, it'll be interesting to see if I survive this or if I get thrown off within a week or two. And, and you know, you got to remember too, when we came on that show with Dana Carvey and Phil Hartman and Jen Hooks and everybody, it was at the it was at the nadir of its existence. It was almost pulled from the air the year before when guys like Robert Downey Jr. on and um, Anthony Michael Hall and, and those people. So I went in there with um, low expectations for the show to even survive, and and that kind of helped too because I thought, well, nobody's watching it, so there's not a lot of pressure on me. You know, it's just the people in the studio and the studio audience, pretty much. And in the back of your mind, because you really didn't think you were going to get it in the first place, are you thinking, well, if I last a couple years, you know, everything else is gravy? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, just if I was just on one show, it would have been, you know, really cool. And it, it, everything happened so quick to me because I, you know, I never even, when, when Dana was up for it and I was dating Jan Hooks at the time, she was up for it. I had no inclination at all that I would ever be considered for it until Dana threw my name in the hat, and um, and you know, and then things happened so quickly. I didn't even I was in New York before I had a chance to tell a lot of my friends that I was on the show. I've done a lot of research, but I never knew you dated Jan Hooks. Oh yeah, Jan and I were friends, really good friends for about six or seven years, and then we became romantically involved, and you know, a, a year before SNL, and then. We both got on that show together, and her mother had just died, and then she came on the show. So it was a really kind of a, you know, a really um, tumultuous time for her and our relationship. And it lasted maybe another year, just kind of puttered out after that. Was that was that difficult for you too? It was difficult. Um, it wasn't difficult for me to be on the show, but it was difficult for me to be on the show um, with her and trying to do the show and then also accommodate her feelings and you know her sadness about her mother passing and. Also, her anxiety about being on this show. I mean, she had severe stage fright, so I would have to, I wouldn't have to, but I would take time and, you know, be with her on Friday nights and try to, um, you know, calm her down. Um, What were some of your all-time favorite sketches on SNL? Boy, there's so many, because, you know, I've been there for for nine years, so... There was everything from Hans and Franz to doing Weekend Update to Mr. Subliminal. And then there were some of the obscure ones that I really loved doing, like the bathroom attendant sketch that yes. I wrote um, about a bathroom attendant in a very small bathroom. And then also Mr. No Death Perception was fun. And then there was a character I did with Phil. Um, he did the Mace character, and I was like the the hostage of the Peeping Tom with him. Mm-hmm. Is there a, a moment of like uh, surrealness, like oh my God, it's the Rolling, St- an after party where it's the Rolling Stones and the Beatles, and and it's you at a booth or something like that? Yeah, it was surreal, and a lot of times I have to pinch myself, especially in the first year when I, you know, I would be rushing from a scene to go change to another one, and the band was going on, and it was, you know, 
it was uh, the Pretenders or you know Paul McCartney or whomever, and uh, and I would just say to myself, "Oh my gosh, I'm on Saturday Night Live, and it's, you know, and it's, the band is playing, and um, I'm here in New York. It's crazy." And were you ever starstruck with with hosts? Like, I'm sure you got to work with some of your idols all the time. I love being on that show. I mean, that's why I stayed there for nine years. I I wasn't looking at it as a stepping stone. I was looking at it as the, you know, the ultimate job. And and I was so starstruck with so many of those people that came on there, you know, hosts and musicians, everyone from Steve Martin to James Taylor, Paul McCartney, you know, Mick Jagger. I mean, everybody, even the athletes, Michael Jordan, Wayne Gretzky. And then when you get Weekend Update, I think you did it for three seasons. Is that right? Mm-hmm. And the big thing that you always hear, and I think it's, it comes from Lauren Michaels, was once you get Weekend Update, everybody's going to know your name, and now your 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 profile is even bigger. Did you experience that? I don't know if it was from Weekend Update or just from being on the show, because at the beginning of the show, they say your name. So that's always up there. But then I guess it's just another time they say your name, and then you're in one you know, uh, for you know 10 minutes or however long that lasts. Um, and then after SNL, you do the show Weeds on Showtime. Uh, you don't come from an acting background. How did SNL prepare you for doing Weeds? SNL was like the boot camp, you know, for for um, for comedy and acting, for everything, basically, even for life. You know, I could get dressed so quickly now and take a shower <laughs> so quickly because I'm so used to it from getting right, dressed right. In between, you know, having like a minute and a half however long a commercial lasted, to getting into my clothes for the next scene. All of our clothes were, you know, most of them were, had Velcro on them instead of buttons, and they would have dressers to surround you when you came off, and they'd be throwing wigs on you and stripping your clothes off. One guy would be putting your shoes on. <laughs> it was pretty crazy. Um, when, I, when I look at your career, it almost seems like you, 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 you fell into stuff. Do you look, how do you look at your career? Well, I say this to people, you know, they ask, a lot of people ask me how I got on Saturday Night Live, although they phrase it more like this. How did you get on Saturday Night Live? Yeah, with a lot of, with a lot of contempt. <laughs> I agree. You know, yeah. I, was, I was lucky. I'm, there's a lot more talented people out there than me, but I think, you know, it was just the chemistry of it all. I mean, how does somebody get into a band? It's just, a, it's, it's kind of like the stars lining up, you know, if it's a successful band, they just happen to know each other and we're at the right place at the right time. And I think it's kind of, you know, if you're a comic and you're, you know, leaning toward getting on Saturday Night Live, and I hear that a lot. People ask me, how can they get on Saturday Night Live? It's just do what you love doing and be passionate. If you're passionate about it, you'll work hard at it, and you'll be around, and you'll you'll be with the right, you know, group of people, hopefully, and at the right places. And and if your stars line up, you'll, you'll get what you want. But there seems like today, more than ever, Kevin, there's so much more pressure than when, when you got on Saturday Night Live, just in, the, in, in comedy and the entertainment business in general. Um, yeah, I don't know about that. I mean, there's always the pressure we put on ourselves. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think maybe I had, I mean, it was, there was still a lot of pressure when I went, even though I thought the show was going to get canceled and, you know, we were on a dying show, but you know, we had that pressure of trying to kind of revive that show and, and stay in New York and stay having this job. But there are high expectations now because there's such a short attention span for everything, you know, with, with all the social media and the, the, all the network shows, the different platforms for having shows, shows don't last that long. And, and it's just you really have to come out of the gate strong and grab people's attention because people have a very short attention span. Um, in 2008, you wrote a book about having a son when you were 53 years old. I am about to have a daughter at 52 years old. What is a piece of advice you could give me? 
Well, spend as much time as you can with the child and be supportive like, you know, my parents were. I'm, I mean, I'm kind of emulating my parents and encouraging and spend time with them and and um, and um, let them see their grandparents a lot. Uh, you know, if they're still around, they're probably getting old. <laughs> I have this feeling like once the kid comes, my career is over. How, how did you deal with that? Well, um, my my career, I think, just kept going in the right direction because when you bring good things into your life, it it makes you a better person, I think, and it makes you uh, more creative, and um, you know, it just adds more flavor to your life. And you write about it, and you talk about it, and it makes you feel good. Um, and they also say to me, when you have a kid, there's going to be more opportunities, more money comes. <laughs> Tell me. Tell me, Kevin, you experienced that. Um, yeah. Yeah, I don't know wh- whether that would have happened with or without the kid, but I remember hearing two comics once talking. Um, I think it was Charles Fleischer and Michael Richards back at the Improv, like in the 1980s. And I think, I don't know, one of them was going to have a baby, but he was worried about it because they weren't making enough money. And the other one said, the money will come. Don't worry about the money. You just have the baby. Oh, I hope he. I hope they could always sell the baby. Right, 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 right. Yeah, and and uh, yeah, and I'm having a daughter, so I th- isn't it a little more? They're more in demand. You can get a, a higher dollar for. A, 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 I believe so. Okay, I believe so. And also, the cool thing um, is, um, you know, you, you just you'll experience a love that you've never had before. Even if you love your wife so much, when you have a child, it's just. I can't even describe the amount of love. That, and you would take a bullet. you take a bullet for them just not to have a cold. Mm-hmm. And how did, because the, the last couple of months uh, with my wife right now, we were fighting a lot. The hormones seemed to be raging. How did you get through that, the, you know, to, to the home stretch? Well, you're already halfway there. You know that it's hormones and it's not her. It's just a, it's a, certainly a challenge. I mean, you know, I remember my wife, I, I was looking at a magazine, and there was a couple pages ripped out. And I said, what, what happened to the magazine? What the pages here? She goes, oh, what she eventually told me there's an article about how pregnant women are in the most murdered um, demographics. <laughs> and she thought I might see that article and get an idea. So she tore it out, she shredded it, and personally hand-delivered it to the garbage can. Well, that's that's comforting, Kevin. Um, t- today, <laughs> but I told her I didn't need that that article to get that idea. I could have come up with that myself. <laughs> yeah, I thought it would have been funny if I brought the the article back in and taped it all back together. Yeah, I I don't think she would have been too upset about that. No, not at all. Yeah, um, today you're back uh, doing stand up and touring around the country. What is different for you today doing stand up than when you started out? Well, it's funny. You know, a lot of people think I'm back doing stand-up, but I never stopped doing it. It really it started off with my passion, and I never let it go. Even on SNL or on leave on the hiatus or the off weeks, I would be doing stand-up either in town or a road gig somewhere. But as far as it changing over the years, I think that with the advent of social media and so much access to everybody, you know, you could you could just start comedy today and put together some jokes and go on, um, you know, your your Facebook or whatever, and just put it out there or YouTube and, and people will comment about it. They'll know your name and maybe people will help you with your jokes. So it's kind of streamlined, I think, you know, but you still have to be good. You have to be good. Um, now you seem like someone who has a really balanced life. You, 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 you enjoy golf, you play poker, you're a, you're an accomplished uh, banjo player. You're a dad. You don't seem like someone who is like totally, totally obsessed with comedy. 
How does having such a, a rich, full life uh, help with developing stand-up material? Well, I think it's kind of like a watercolor painting. Do you ever watercolor paint? Uh, yes. Where you coat the, the paper with water first, and then you take a little paint you put on there, and it just spreads out. That's kind of what happened with me. I started with stand-up, and that was my sole focus. And a lot of times I'll talk to comics, and they won't even be in a relationship because they're just focusing on their, their act, and comedy is their mistress, they say. And, and that's good, but you have to have a life. You have to have something to, to draw from, and, and, and you have to be happy in, in order to work and go out and you know, be in a hotel alone and for you know, a week in a row or whatever and not you know, beat yourself up. So you have to have a, you have to have a full life. Do you also work on yourself? I went to your website, and, and I could totally relate to this. Uh, you're raising money for a movie about uh, a story about people-pleasing. And I'm a huge people-pleaser, and it certainly hasn't served me in my life. Do you do therapy? Do you do other things to, to, to work on you know, your self-development? Oh, sure. I've, I've, for a long time, I had trouble saying no to people because I didn't, I wanted to be liked, I guess that was the, the bottom line. And, you know, I wanted to be accepted, but you know, um, I have had therapy over the years, not a ton of it. I went through a divorce and I got therapy and, um, and occasionally, you know, I'll go with my wife, we'll go to counseling just, just, just to keep it, um, keep it solid and all that, but it's all good. You know, it's kind of good to kind of, um, think about why you do things. And, um, and so, you know, I've, I've read all those self-help books too when I was in my early 20s, you know, and trying to get through that. Life is difficult. That's the first line of the books, you know. Um, so how did you get, how did you uh, overcome people-pleasing? Well, I still haven't completely overcome it. It's just, um, it's, I kind of know how to control it now and I kind of know when I can't do something and, and I don't want to inconvenience other people that's usually what you do when you're a people pleaser and you can't say no to people you're you're making strangers happy but the people that are paying the price are the people that you live with and you love so you know once you kind of realize that you kind of think twice about it and it's kind of getting fun to say no to people now (laughs) well i would imagine like when i have the courage to do it how, how do you deal with the reaction you get because it's different i mean there's all sorts of feelings that we have inside us because there's, we're. I know for me, I'm afraid to say no. Yeah. Well, here's a good example. I'm. I just became the honorary mayor of the Pacific Palisades, the town I live in. Congratulations. Thank you. And a lot of you know the, when they asked me to do it, I said, "Well, I don't have a lot of time. You know, I work a lot and I travel." They said, "All you have to do is be in a parade uh, on the Fourth of July and the Christmas parade and the, the car." You know. And I thought my son would like that. So I said, okay, sure, that'll be fun. But since I have agreed, I've been getting so many requests to do things. I'm in front of me right now, it's from the Girl Scouts of Greater Los Angeles. There's about 100 Girl Scouts that are, I don't know, getting some kind of a badge or something, and they are asking me to send a certificate to each one, congratulating them. You know, And I, I don't have the time to do that. So I have to tell them, no, I can't do it. I'm, telling, I'm getting requests every day where I'm saying no. And you just have to let it go. Do, do you think that, that, that that's helping you in your career by, by saying no? Well, you know, when, eventually, you know, when you've been in this business for a while, you kind of, it's a business, and you have to run it like a business. And sometimes you have to fire people that you don't want to, and, um, and that's part of saying no, too. And it's, it's really, you know, to, to help you um, become successful. Um, we've we've got to wrap this up. A couple more quick questions. Um, I've I've always appreciated your style, your dry wit. Um, 
where, how did you develop your, your particular style of comedy? Well, I was influenced by a lot of different comics growing up, and there are certain comics that you know always appeal to you that may not appeal to other people. And I, I had a select group of people that I liked, and, and I don't know if they were that dry, but there were people like Andy Kaufman and Albert Brooks, Steve Martin, and a comic named Stanley Myron Handelman. And there was, a lot of it was misdirection comedy. So, you know, when you start doing stand-up, you emulate people that you enjoyed growing up watching. And uh, when I started, everybody was doing Richard Pryor or Steve Martin or Letterman or Woody Allen. And um, and then eventually you have to develop your own style. You find out what you're all about. It's almost like being a blues musician. You have to kind of live life a little bit in order to write. And how long did it take you to, to find your style? Well, I think your style is always changing, too. You know, I mean, it took me, I don't know, probably... Um, long time you know a long time to find my style you know maybe eight years maybe longer and and there's the only way you can do it is is to get on stage and and bomb in front of an audience a lot yeah if you're starting out as a comic the advice the advice i got that i still remember from a comic who's not a comic anymore and but he told me get on stage as much as possible just get up there anywhere get up there and do it i remember going to see a movie once and um in, in Hollywood, and Andrew Dice Clay got up in front of the movie theater crowd. His manager introduced him, and he did like you know ten minutes before the movie came on. Um, we uh, really quick to end this. What is one piece of advice you'd give someone starting out in comedy today? Well, the same advice I got: get get up as much as possible and write a lot and be original. You have to be unique and original and because there's so many comics out there now and all of these different platforms and to be, um, to stand out, you really need something, you know, and, and, and stand up, you got to stand out. There you go. Stand, so. <laughs> that's going to be on uh, that. That's a, that's a great uh, quote, isn't it? For a book jacket. Um, I guess so. how do you be original and take the pressure off yourself of being original? Well, that's up to the individual, you know, you, you gotta like, know that you're capable of only so much and you you know hope that you're original and just keep looking for different avenues and different ways to be original and look at other people and see what they're doing and then don't do that. <laughs> Kevin Nealon, thank you so much for being our guest on Improv Nerd. My pleasure. Nice talking to you, Jimmy. You too, Kevin. And there you have it. Another episode of Improv Nerd is in the can. And I want to thank our guest, Kevin Nealon, who will be appearing at City Winery here in Chicago for two shows on Sunday, May 22nd. To get tickets, just go to citywinery.com. I'd also like to thank my producer here in Chicago, Dan Schiffmacher. He's the one who makes me sound so slick and so professional. You wouldn't be hearing my voice right now if it wasn't for Dan. Also, if you want more information about me, Jimmy Corain, and my award-winning Art of Slow Comedy classes and workshops, go to my website, jimmycorain.com. As you know, we're taking over social media, and we're doing this very wisely. We're on Facebook, so go to Improv Nerd and like us, because it really helps with our low, my low self-esteem. Also, follow us on Twitter, Improv underscore Nerd, and go to our YouTube channel, where you'll see clips from our live shows, and that's Improv Nerd podcast, all one word, on YouTube. As you know, we're also part of a wonderful podcast collective called Feral Audio, some of the most unique, hilarious, and innovative podcasts out there. There's over 30 podcasts uh, at feralaudio.com. I'd like to thank both my sponsors today, Aaron Graham Coaching and the Atlanta Improv Festival. And of course, I'd like to thank you for listening. Until next time, remember, walk, don't run.
Hello, I'm Kyle Ayers. I'm the host of Never Seen It, the podcast where comedians rewrite famous movies and TV shows they've never seen, and then we give them a read in studio. This is a clip I want to play for you guys from an episode where Langston Kerman rewrites Scarface. He's never seen it, but he wrote a script based on what he thinks he knows about it. And here's a clip. Give it a listen. All right. Scarface, the new frontier. Interior, happening discotheque. Remember when we call clubs discotheques? <laughs> LOL. The 70s were crazy. Night. The crowd bustles with young, hot Mexicans who are supposed to be Cuban and all are dressed in butterfly collared shirts and pants that look like Jinko jeans and pleated khakis had a really weird baby. <laughs> There's sex in the air and Poppy wants a whiff. <laughs> oh, my God. Scarface, 22 to 45. <laughs> like he's a television audience demographic? Devilishly handsome. Not even a little bit Italian looking, so get that out of your dumb brain. Walks through the crowd with the confidence of a man who's going on MTV Cribs with the Ying Yang Twins. <laughs> Does he actually have a scar on his face? Fuck no. Why would he even why would you even ask that? That's not important. What's important is that he is not at all a problematic stereotype <laughs> and that he has come for his cocaine. <laughs> As he approaches the red rope of the VIP, pronounced V-A-P-E in Spanish, oh my he spots his dear friend who is almost certainly going to become his enemy by the end of the film, Smooth Skin. Scarface yells out his signature line. Ciao, Bella. It's me, Scarface. Oh, my 